0: This morning we look to introducing uh, 1st Corinthians. Having completed uh, Romans, we look to uh, 1st Corinthians. And we'll be concentrated on 1st Corinthians chapter 1, specifically verses 1 to 9. And in uh, in this epistle to the Corinthians, Paul makes an overarching, kind of a general, overall appeal as throughout the epistle... He will admonish and correct the Corinthians along several points. So the city itself was one in which it attempted to sway the church that existed there away from the simple love and devotion and fellowship that they had in Christ. And it was along several lines that that was taking place. The city was certainly known for its immorality and its prosperity and wickedness. It was a port city that enjoyed all the Finest imports, all the treasures related to that, but also a thriving pagan religion uh, mixed with the Greco-Roman temple worship that was joined to sexual immorality. And so there, there were uh, temple prostitutes that flaunted their exploits among the people and among uh, the Corinthians. So this immorality was always at the forefront of the minds of the of the Corinthians. But the deception was is that it was tied to pagan. Religion and pagan practice. Uh, But I would say, do not mistake what I've just said as we look and launch into uh, into Corinthians, do not mistake what I've said for a rampant barbarianism, because this was not necessarily a barbarian society. The city provided a religious flair to immorality. And it was, in fact, sophisticated in promoting the wisdom of men through philosophy and eloquence. So it was that kind of city. It was a sophisticated and sinful city. Uh, And certainly there is a barbarianism to sin itself. But in that regard, it was all uh, wrapped up in the so-called wisdom that men believed they possessed in the city. And so the city had been known so much for its sinful exploits in the known world at that time that those who either wanted to be partakers of its lust or those who warned of its lust were said to have uh, called those lusts to Corinthianize. So to Corinthianize was to partake of the city's exploits in all the areas that I've mentioned. And so here, this is the letter to whom Paul writes. This is the church uh, that is located there, whom Paul had a certain affection and love for. And Paul is appealing to that church first, reminding them as he starts, reminding them who it was that sent him. He reminds them first who it was that sent him to them, because as we progress through the letter, everything is up for challenge among the city of Corinth. Even they would challenge uh, even this point that Paul was sent to them by the Lord. And so Paul had to remind them that that was the case. They would, throughout this letter, almost immediately, almost immediately, as we get to the verses beyond verse 9 and look at verse 10, they begin to immediately challenge Paul's apostleship. I mean, we're not even almost out of the introduction to that point, and the next time we're together, we'll look at this, but they begin to challenge immediately Paul's apostleship from uh, verses 10 almost all the way through. And so it is there that, uh, that we meet the church in Corinth of this time. But as I said, in verse one, as it says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So again, Paul, in verse 1, reminded them he was a called apostle, not by the will of men. Men did not call him to uh, the role of an apostle, to the office of apostle, to the function of apostle. And they certainly didn't call him to Corinth. It was God himself, by the will of God, that sent him before the people there. And further, he mentioned Sosthenes. And it is not certain that this is the same Sosthenes in Acts 2. 18 seven, uh, uh, Acts chapter 18 verse 17. Uh, because the name is a common name. however, I believe there is certainly possibility that he is connected uh, in that way because the name is mentioned in that place in Acts and it's mentioned here. Uh, so many would say that they're not necessarily sure, but I would say that it is certainly significant that you see his name in Acts 18 and then you see his name here. And I'll tell you, it is because that this Sosthenes here in Corinthians was a companion to Paul. He was a companion to Paul and he was a fellow believer in Christ Jesus. And as I've said, I I believe that this could be the same Sosthenes based on what took place in Acts 18. And if you remember there, there was a feud among the Jews uh, directly related to the Corinthians So there was a feud among the Jews concerning the the Corinthians. And this Sosthenes is mentioned with certain connection, whoever this Sosthenes is, with certain connection to both Corinth and to Paul in Acts, just as he is here as we begin Corinthians. And so if you were to look at that chapter, you would see that a Sosthenes is mentioned. And I do believe that there is some connection to that one and the one that is here. And so this and I say that because, too, with the early church, there weren't many first generation Christians yet. And so when names are mentioned, as we talked about, as we concluded Romans, those names were standing out among the the fellowship of Christians, uh, both where they resided in local fellowship and where they resided with the churches that had connection to one another. And so this first generation church among the Gentiles is Paul's certain audience. This is the first generation church among the Gentiles there. And through this epistle, you will see, as it will be apparent to you, that they had to persevere in the faith to give proof that their profession of faith was genuine. That will be what Paul certainly uh, exhorts them to do at several points and requires of them for their own sanctification uh, among them. And so verse two, he says to the church of God, which is at Corinth and those, as he says, who had been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. So so far, we know that these were believers. These were believers. And Paul wrote to the brothers and sisters in Christ who had been cleansed by their position and calling in Christ and were being cleansed progressively or, or in the ongoing sense. Throughout their lives as saints in Him. So they were declared cleansed, and then they were progressively or being cleansed as an ongoing uh, function of the Holy Spirit's work in their salvation and in their lives, and they lived lives as saints in Him. And so He said, they were also those who called on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And He says, with all who in every place. And so there was a connection, as I mentioned before, to the church in Corinth, as there was to the other churches in the known world. So it wasn't just about the church in Corinth. It was about how the church in Corinth functioned in the life of the church overall related to the fellowship that all the saints have uh, within the church age. And so Paul connected them to that family of believers across the board. So his greeting was, again, it was a reminder of who had sent him as an apostle to them and the church of whom Christ was their head. So Christ was the head of the church. And I'll mention it again. If you are to glance down at verses 11 and 12 of this very chapter for for the people of Corinth, they openly challenge that they begin to challenge that by the way they are functioning because of a certain dispute that will arise that causes for personality cults. And hero worship among their hearts, and they begin to pit the men of God who serve Christ in unity, they begin to try to pit them against each other uh, and make that apparent. But that is not the case. And we'll explore that even more. But this is not simply uh, a letter where Paul is just going through the motions, he's trying to correct things that plague them within and things that plague them without. But he's certainly making emphasis and concern with the things that are plaguing the church from within. So in essence, we know that he's writing to the elect of God and he wished upon them, not division and anarchy. He didn't want them to remain divided. But in verse three says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants peace for them. It's not simply a platitude a greeting that we would utter kind of as Christianese when we come into the company of each other. This wasn't some meaningless Christian phase, but Paul wished for them to enjoy the benefits of their salvation tied to what they had not earned, but were given as a gift. That is the grace given from God. That's what he wanted. And he wanted them to enjoy the peace that they had from God. That is the eternal peace of reconciliation. We think about it this year as the Word of God says peace on earth to whom God is well pleased. It's not just unilateral peace to every person without qualification. But Paul wanted these people to enjoy the peace that went with being reconciled to God and being in relationship with him by uh, by the salvation that he's granted to them. And so he wanted for them to enjoy the benefits of their salvation. So the eternal peace of reconciliation. He wanted them to experience what would be the inheritance of the saints. That's what he wanted for them. And he says all that in the verses of that initial greeting, that eternal peace, the fact that they're joint heirs in and with Christ and citizens of the heavenly eternal kingdom of God. And so you see that all of that pales in comparison to the arising dispute that is before us. In verses 11 uh, to 17 as it starts and then reappears in 1st Corinthians chapter 3 but Paul was I mean let's let's think about this Paul was indeed thankful for them in spite of what would occur next the division that would challenge their fellowship in Christ Paul did not excuse it as well no church is perfect Paul didn't say that he didn't say oh no church is perfect doesn't matter I'm not going to address it in fact For if he did that and if he thought that way, we would simply end the epistle here. We would end it with his greeting. No need to make corrections in the church. No need to explain uh, the sound teaching that provides a health uh, to the spiritual uh, life of a church and of the people that fellowship in the church. We could simply end it here. Paul did not go to the lowest standard and make that the standard for fellowship. Instead, Paul called them to the upward call of living holy in Christ Jesus, one to another, that upward call. And so in verse four, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus. And so he says he says that and then he essentially is calling them to be thankful as he is thankful for them. Because that was his ultimate appeal to what God had accomplished. He wanted them to be thankful for what God had accomplished. He wanted them to live in the power of God through the divine grace evidenced evidenced by the new birth and the changed life. He didn't say pretend to love one another. He didn't say pretend to fellowship. He said walk in step with what is actually yours. That is namely your salvation. And if you're not doing that, you are lending proof that you have not tasted the divine grace Of which Paul was greeting them. And so Paul wanted them to enjoy it with respect to the whole person. Because that is Christianity. That is true biblical Christianity. It impacts the whole person. He says that in everything you were enriched in him. In all speech. And all knowledge. And he then says in verse 6. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed. In you, in everything you were enriched. The idea here is that they received divine riches and treasures. This is what had been given to them in their salvation. It is what is theirs. It is their certain inheritance. They have everything they need, Paul essentially says. They don't need all the extra things that was drawing them away from a simple devotion to Christ. They didn't need all those things. They have everything they need. In fact, Peter wrote in his epistle that if you have the scriptures, you have all you need pertaining to life and godliness. This is kind of the same way in which Paul uh, says what he says, that I want you to be enriched in all things. I want you to enjoy all that is yours in him, in all speech, as it impacts the speech and in all knowledge, not just some. So Paul's standard is perfecting holiness, not, well, sometimes things happen Sometimes wicked things happen in the church and no church is perfect. Paul doesn't say that here at all in his letter to the Corinthians. To correct what plagued the church in Corinth, because this is what can be a correction for any church that is plagued with the divisions, uh, with the ruthlessness that sometimes comes with playing playing a church and all the things that are a facet of that. But to correct what plagued the church in Corinth, we're going to see this Paul pointed directly to the sufficiency of Christ Jesus alone, that Christ is all sufficient. You have no need of anything else. You just need Christ. So when you are in the midst of the fellowship, you need only to hear of him. You need only to be strengthened in him. You need to worship him. You need to pray to him. And all that you do is in him and for him, through him and by him, which is what Paul will say later in Colossians. But that it is Christ at the start and Christ at the very end and Christ throughout and everything in between. And so that is what Paul puts forward to correct what ails the church in Corinth. He doesn't look at the highest bidder. This was a wealthy city. He doesn't look at the highest bidder and take the side of the highest bidder. He doesn't exercise a whatever works pragmatic mentality that says whoever is giving the most donation to the church there is the one who is correct. What he appeals to is he says we ought to be in step with who Christ is and recognize he's all we need. And if we recognize that, not only pointing to him, but practicing our time together in fellowship as though that is the case, then we will not experience the things that have been injected into the life of the church in Corinth. And that's where he goes. But he points directly to the sufficiency of Christ alone. And he points to the evidence or mark of a sanctified life. He points to that as sure proof of the Christian's faith. So many believe that fellowship is around everything except a sanctified life. And so you have divisions that are allowed to remain and fester and grow worse. And then factions develop and rivalries and particular interests. And then the word eventually, the, bo- the book uh, itself, the word of God, becomes uh, somewhat of an a, of, of a extra addendum or it becomes something that is a supplement to man's practice of religion. And what then ensues is chaos, true chaos. But Paul points to the word of God as the sure remedy for all the things that will challenge the faith of those who are in Corinth. And he says it, in everything you were enriched. He doesn't just say this in a vacuum. He says, in everything you were enriched, but it is with regard to what they say and what they know. In other words, what he's saying to them is, your thoughts and convictions are tied directly to your words. Actions and testimony before others. Because he says, In everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Your mind ought to function as though this true this is true, and your mouth ought to function as though this is true. And he says, even within with respect to the testimony concerning Christ. And there's a reason why he says this. It is within these two arenas that the Christian can test himself to see if he truly believes in what Christ has commanded and what Christ has accomplished. It is this question. Do my words and thoughts align with God's thoughts and words as revealed in Scripture? Do my words and thoughts align with God's thoughts and words as revealed in Scripture? And Paul goes to this in verse six, that the testimony as it had been confirmed in them. He doesn't say that their testimony was confirmed by him. He says that the testimony was confirmed by Christ in them. And it is the sure work of Christ. Look at verse six, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. It was confirmed in you. You walked in step with what was said. But what we recognize that they begin to get pulled away from the sure testimony that is In their lives and that marks their lives and division ensues. They confessed and attempted to live in light of all Christ had accomplished by His sinless life, by his vicarious life, by the fact that he sacrificed on the cross, uh, by his uh, atoning death, by the fact of his resurrection. And so they had to they had to uh, this point see in their own lives that all these things were evidence. And not simply the mouth must agree with the word of Christ, but it was that the thoughts and actions must agree as well. So it was not only that the mouth must agree with the word of Christ, but the thoughts and actions must equally agree. And that is most of what Paul is going to be telling them in different ways. But all of it, divine revelation from God himself to them. But that's where he goes after their... uh, uh, sometimes the wickedness that prevails in the life of the church that is there. He wants them to see that the mouth and the thoughts and the actions must agree. That's what Paul calls them to. And then Paul went to the purpose of this short testimony. Verse seven. What is the purpose? Why? Why do I want you to be enriched in him in all speech and w- in knowledge? Why do I want you to walk in step with the testimony that has been confirmed in you? You saw it for yourself, he says. But why? Well, the purpose is so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it says who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. All that, as we back up in verse seven, he did not want them to lack in their receipt of these things, because if they lacked in their receiving these things, they would lack in their service in these things to one another. He wanted them to receive the full abundance of what was theirs concerning the blessing of what was theirs in Christ Jesus. And listen to this as they waited eagerly. So there's a hope. There's a forward perspective, a future perspective from the vantage point of where they are, which motivates them to do the things that they do. They're waiting eagerly with serious, sober and joyful expectation, the great return and second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were waiting for that. But we also see that these things to which Paul exhorted them should serve to push back against the tide around them. So that's what Paul wanted. He wanted them to be unified in Christ uh, and for it to be demonstrated in all speech and knowledge. For that testimony among them to be made sure so that they can practice the gifts among one another in verse 7. And the purpose for which all this must must take place, even from where we are now to where we're going in this text, is that they needed to fight back against the things that were encroaching on these areas. The many distractions designed to draw them into divisions and rivalries, the embrace of error and the false teachers who brought those errors, the sinfulness within the house of God and even more that Paul wanted them to push back against that. And so he exhorted them to remember the things that hold the power to successfully push back and prevail over those things. He didn't desire for them to remain in division. He didn't desire for them to embrace error. He didn't set before them false teachers and wickedness in the house of God and somehow leave it to them to decide. That's not what he desired for them. And that was not what divine grace had accomplished in them. It had accomplished their sanctification, which means that they were to be loyal to Christ and loyal to him alone. Because if it had, if Paul really wanted for them to simply just Whatever, you know, whatever the ideas of the day were, whatever the wisdom of men was, you decide on your own. No reason to correct anything. No reason to deal with anything. Let the divisions fester. Let them take root. Let the factions have their day. If that's the case, then it would be against the first few verses where Paul appealed to their sanctification. Because Paul says in verse two to the church of God, which is at Corinth to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. So you're sanctified. So you ought to live in a way where that is reflected in your mind, but it's also reflected in your body. And it will then certainly be reflected in your speech. And he said that they were the elect. They were saints by calling and that they were in fellowship with the saints in all places. My point is, Paul's expectation here is no different than his expectations in every place that was named the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul wanted every church to to aspire to perfecting holiness. And also he wanted them to be unified in the sound doctrine and the teachings of Christ and to be unified in their salvation and unified against the divisiveness of error and those who brought error. And so you'll see that that is certainly uh, what Paul is he's fighting for unity and he's fighting against the divisiveness of error. He's fighting against the divisiveness of error. He desired a unified church along these lines. He wanted them to live now in light of eternity. He wanted them to live now in light of eternity with the proper understanding that we all will give an account before the Lord. Verse eight, who will also confirm you to the end blameless blameless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we want. We want to all live in such a way where we are presented blameless before the Lord Jesus Christ. Presented blameless. And what that means is a sanctified life that is confessing sin. That is crying out to God uh, when we sin. It doesn't mean that our lives are to certain at a certain point upon this natural earth, upon where we live, that we are now sinless at any point in time. But it means that we are certainly sensitive to the fact that when we sin, that we are confessing to God our sins, that we are crying out to him to forgive us, that we are constantly seeking his will and constantly trying to war against the flesh in those areas that try to draw us away from his will. That's what Paul wanted, because to live that way is to live in light of eternity, because, you know, the way it comes to an end is you're not accountable to yourself for yourself. You're not accountable to any man or women. You are accountable to God himself. And Paul is saying if you live like that is the case and live with the faith that you have and a sanctified life that is evidence of that, you will be presented blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ because he has bore. uh, He has bore our sins on the cross. And so you see that. He is teaching them. To fight against the divisions that seek to uh, establish themselves in the life of that church there. He is teaching them that God would see to it by the spirit that they would stand before him blameless in that day. And that day is at the end of the age, that day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here he introduces something else. He appeals to our glorification. As the hope and sure direction of our sanctification, uh, both for them in Corinth and for us in the modern church in which we find ourselves. So the appeal has not changed. The appeal has not changed. The head of the church has not changed. What the apostles have taught, be it in the closed canon of scripture, has not changed. Everything remains the very same that it has always been. And it is upon this fact that Paul says you should not be swallowed up by all the divisions, the distractions, the sinfulness of the age that God would see us through by his power, that God would see us through. That God himself would present us blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his power in our salvation, in our sanctification and in the fact that we will be made like him when we appear before him and reign with him. And so he appeals to that glorification. It's amazing how today you don't hear that appeal as how one might fight against the world system and how to prevail against the world system. You don't hear it often. And when you hear it, you don't see those living it when they say that that is how you win the war. You win the war by being focused on the one who is eternal. On the one who has for us an eternal kingdom by sticking to the eternal word in the face of all the things that will pass away. And so Paul is setting that before them. That it is the simple thought that God will see us through. And he certainly has to this point. He has seen us through. We're on the other side of this ancient New Testament church. And yet we are still here. And God has seen us through. And when it is our time to be with him, whether it is upon his sure and certain return in our lifetime or we pass away from this life into the glory to be with him, we will say that God has seen us through to the very end. And when we appear with him at the end of the age, we will say the same thing. And that is what Paul is trying to get them to see. He doesn't want them to rate where they are based on the things that are around them in the spirit of the age. Those sure distractions, uh, often of the flesh, capitalized upon by the enemy to cause us to lose our love and devotion to Christ. Verse nine. God is faithful. That's what he says. God is faithful. Through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. As I've said, God would bring it all to pass. In his power through us and for us in Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, this is not all there is. For there is correction that is necessary among the Corinthians. Because what would spring up among them were rivalries and factions. And we will look more to this next time. But we started out as a report that comes As Paul gives exhortation and the report comes from Chloe's people and Chloe's people go to Paul. And Paul doesn't he doesn't ignore Chloe's people. He doesn't kick Chloe's people out of the church in Corinth. He doesn't take the side of the people in Corinth. Instead, he not only hears the matter, but he believes Chloe's people because Chloe's people coming to him is evidence of what he said at the beginning of the epistle, that these are called saints who care about holiness in the life of the church. They care about the saints. He didn't see them as pesky individuals who were simply against his agenda to serve the church. He said, we have to deal with this. And he spends the next couple of chapters dealing with the things that Chloe's people provide. And it opens up so much more throughout the the epistle. We thank God for Paul, the apostle, most certainly. Ultimately, we thank God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. But we also thank the Lord for Chloe's people because they cared enough to go to Paul, the apostle. And listen, Paul, the apostle could be reached. Paul, the apostle was accessible. They were able to go to Paul and say, you're writing this letter. I think you should know of the issues that exist. And Paul didn't say, well, you know, we'll, we'll give it some time. I won't address these things. We have to be sensitive. We have to be gracious. Paul said, I'm going to go right to the problem. And if you look at verse 12, we'll look at this more next time. They were throwing Paul's name in the middle of it. And they were saying, you know, I'm in, I'm in Paul's faction. And Paul didn't say, you know, good for you. I'm happy you're in my faction. What Paul says is, he says, there is no Paul faction. There is no faction upon which the church is established, and Paul would not give that a hearing. Instead, by the grace of God, thank the Lord that he gave Chloe's people a hearing instead. Because then we would have uh, an unbiblical church uh, at this very pivotal time in the early church's history uh, where factions would be the standard of church fellowship. So we praise God for the Spirit's work, and we'll look to this very important context next time. Let's pray.